Today is a great Sunday that you are here, Um, not only because we're going to preach the Word of God, but we're actually starting a brand new series through the book of Mark. Um, Some of you know last Easter or last weekend we did an Easter um, sermon really just highlighting the resurrection of Jesus, and before that we kind of had a a mini-series of being bold and what it means to be bold um, for Jesus Christ and sharing our faith and living out our faith. And so today we're going to start a brand new series as we walk line by line, verse by verse through the book of Mark. And so I need to do two things today. One is I need to set up the book itself. Um, we're going to spend quite a while in the book of Mark, so I need to lay down a framework and foundation for the book of Mark itself. I don't want to assume that everyone's on the same page of what this book is, who wrote it, when they wrote it, and why that stuff matters. Um, and then I'm going to kind of lay down where we're going to go in the book of Mark. Most books of the Bible, Mark included, starts off with an introduction. And these introductions are just as inspired as any other part of the book and really gives us a direction for where we want to go, for where God is going to take us through the book of Mark. So let me give you some quick facts about this book. You may remember the name. Um, This is written by the guy who's named John Mark. Um, And some of you may remember we walked through the book of Acts. John Mark didn't actually have a great testimony. Um, one of the reasons, so there's some doubt as to who actually wrote this book by some scholars. Um, one of the, 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 the evidences or the proofs that John Mark actually wrote this book was if we we're going to make up somebody to write a book, we would not use John Mark. <laughs> like he was this little known character in Acts 13. You might remember he's actually the one that Paul was like, no, I'm not going on a mission trip with this dude. And Paul and Paul and Barnabas actually split their missionary journeys over the inclusion of John Mark. Because the Bible says John Mark basically failed them at some point, And Paul was like, nah, I'm good. And so it was, became Barnabas and Mark as they traveled and did some stuff. And then Paul and, and Luke and then uh, others and Timothy and Silas. And so um, John Mark didn't have a sterling reputation up to this point in Scripture that we've looked through. And so if you're going to make up someone to write a book, you're going to make, use somebody like Paul or, or Peter, or some, some name or some weight. So the, this book is written by a little-known person. Um, some believe in conjunction with Peter. But here we have John Mark who, in our point of view, having gone, just gone through the book of Acts, kind of ends the story in kind of a low point. A man who was basically, Paul says, I don't want to do ministry with that guy because he can't be trusted. So clearly, God uses broken people. Amen. Clearly, that was not the end of his story because he is writing a gospel, um, and what we have come to realize is actually the first gospel. So I know in your Bibles, it has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but those aren't chronological orders. Um, The book of Mark is said to have been written first. And so 95% of Mark you will find in other gospels, especially Matthew and Luke. 95% is in other places of scripture. So the question might be, well, why aren't we just reading those other ones, right? Why aren't we reading Matthew? Or why aren't we going to some of those other gospels? Um, And they're all valid to read, but the book of Mark is something special, y'all. Um, there's a movie. I know I'm not going to talk about Avengers. <laughs> I think every sermon ever is like on Sunday right now is there's an Avenger illustration. I'm not going to do that. Maybe. Um, I have seen the movie though. So. Um. <laughs> so there's a movie called The Gray. Has anyone heard of that movie? It's this like no name movie. There's no action in it, but it's by like the Liam Neeson is in the movie. So you think like I watched it because he's on the cover. I'm like yo Liam Neeson. This is my dude. He's going to put bodies in the ground. You know what I'm saying? So I'm thinking it's going to be this high action, you know, movie. Um, But it's actually this slow, sad, heart-wrenching story. Like, is this, I mean, I'm in tears at the end of this movie. Like, what is happening? Like, I'm feeling bad for him. Um, And the only, the, the biggest part of action in the movie isn't actually even shown. They start off the fight and then it just fades to black and the credits roll. It's a phenomenal movie, though. Phenomenal movie with very little action, but it's mostly just the story and the narrative and all the other things. Um, And then there's movies like The Expendables. Do y'all remember The Expendables? 
How many people know the plot of that movie? That, we, didn't, we didn't come here for that. You know what I mean? We didn't come here for a story. We came to see stuff being blown up by Jason Statham and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, you, you know what you're getting into when you watch a movie like The Expendables, right? And so you're, like, you're going to see that low critic rating score, and you're like, so? Like, this, I came for this. And so there are stories that pull on different threads and have different features, and the book of Mark is one of those books that just, it just starts and it doesn't stop. It starts off running, and it never slows down. Mark is writing about one thing and one thing only, who Jesus is and why that matters. So you're going to hear, you're going to hear passages in this book that, that are in other books of the Bible, Matthew and Luke, are actually long stories. Like today, we're going to read about the temptation of Jesus. It's like one verse. We're going to read about the baptism of Jesus. It's like two verses. So Mark spends no time telling these stories because he's trying to make a case to say one thing. This is the Expendables version of the gospel, y'all. Um, nah, that was probably... See what I'm saying? You veer off the notes. So not, not the greatest illustration, right? But it's, this, it's the gospel that just hits hard. It's the shortest of all the gospels. 16 chapters. The shortest out of all with the least amount of narrative, with the least amount of preaching. Because Mark is trying to build a case that Jesus is more than we think he is. Jesus is more than we think he is, which leads to the series title more than a man. You're going to see a theme as we walk through the book of Mark. We're going to break it up into four different series, if you will, and each one of them is going to have a theme of Jesus being more than. And here we're going to start with Jesus being more than a man. He is not less than a man. Jesus came as a man. We're going to see his humanity on display. Jesus was tired, and he ate, and he slept, and he grieved, and he wept. He was a man like we were, and we're going to find out why that's important later. But Jesus wasn't just a man, and that's Mark's point. Let's read together Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his son John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. 
you get the pace of this book just by reading these first few verses that, that Mark is trying to prove a point here. He's not trying to give you all the details of the ins and outs of what happened where and who was there. He is trying to prove a point and make a case. And because of its brevity, because of how short and to the point Mark is, commentators actually have actually struggled with understanding this book. Because most of these stories, or some of these stories are not even in chronological order. Mark is taking events and he's actually grouping them thematically rather than chronologically. He's taking things that happened first and actually making them last and things that happened last and actually making them first. And so a lot of commentators are like, man, what is Mark's purpose in writing? Some think he's talking about suffering because of a suffering theme later in the book. But the themes of suffering are a little too vague and not specific. And so most would say that that's not the theme. Some believe that Mark was actually trying to talk about the end times or talk about eschatological issues, end time issues. When is Jesus going to come back? How is Jesus going to come back? And there is some mention of those things, but that can't be the central point of the book because those verses are rare and far and few between. And you'll notice something in Mark chapter 1. He didn't start off with the genealogy as you will find in other passages of Scripture. Mark didn't start off with a a deep, robust theological statement as the Gospel of John starts off with. He starts off in the beginning, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the story begins right there. I think all of these things, instead of making the purpose of Mark unclear, actually serve to make the purpose of Mark very clear. The whole book of Mark revolves around Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning of the book, he's going to give you the spoiler at the end of the book. Here's where I'm going with this story. In the beginning, the good news of Jesus, the anointed one, Christ is not his last name, it's actually a title, the anointed one, the son of God, the son of God not just being lineage, but it's saying he's equal to God, the beginning of the good news about him, the promised one to come. Jesus, who is the good news, Jesus, who is the Son of God, who claims equality with God, Jesus, the anointed one, not just his last name, but the one who was promised to come, this book is clearly about Jesus. And there are lots of principles and points. We're going to talk about one of the other themes before we end our time today, but primarily hear this. The book of Mark is to make it it clear that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that there is no other hope, there is no other power that we can lean on besides for him. And in the first 20 verses, he lays out at least three proofs, the first being prophecy, the second being the proof of the Father and the Spirit, and the last being a proof of his power, his preaching, and his power over even people themselves. So let's look at these three proofs that Mark gives us and see if this Jesus really is the person that Mark claims him to be. Look at verses 2 through 8 of Mark chapter 1. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. The verses go on to say that he's actually talking about John the Baptist. Some of you may know John the Baptist. Him and Jesus were related. And so Jesus, John actually came before Jesus' public ministry. And John had a simple message. Do y'all know what that message was? Repent and, and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. He always says repent and believe. That's not wrong. Right? Repent and be baptized. That was his message. But he also said, look at the end of verses 7 and 8. One is more powerful than I that is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit. So John himself is saying, I'm not the guy. 
I'm the guy preparing the way for the guy. Now, that was a common thing. If you were a king in ancient Near East times, when you wanted to travel, you sent a messenger ahead of you, right? Because we think I-26 is bad. Imagine roads in 30, 40, 50 A.D., right? There wasn't a central highway system. There wasn't a department of transportation. And so there were the Romans that kind of built some road system, but they were kind of left to the individual villages to keep up and repair. So when the king was going to a city, they had to make sure everything was perfect. And so a messenger would actually go out before the king's like, where are you going? You're going hand to hand? Okay, great. Let me, let me check the roads, make sure the roads are clear. Make sure, if, even if we have to build new roads, if we have to level mountains or, un, or build up valleys, whatever we have to do, we're going to make this trip for the king straight and smooth. That was an actual task of someone. And so when he was talking about, I'm a messenger calling out, preparing the way for the Lord, he wasn't using metaphor language. This is language that people understood. It's like, oh, it's like when Herod and Caesar come, and now we have to do all of this construction before he gets here to make sure that when he gets here, things are right. And so John the Baptist was that man, preparing people's hearts for the message of Jesus, telling people that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. We talked last Sunday about how the good news is only good news if we understand the bad news. We need a Savior isn't good news if you think you're okay. Jesus loves you doesn't really mean much to you if you think you're a pretty good person. Of course Jesus loves me. Everybody loves me. Right? You see, the good news isn't good news until we hear the bad news first. That if people really knew who you really were, no one would love you. No one would accept you. If people could see your thoughts and your desires that you really have that you would never share, if people knew the real you, you'd be by yourself. If God were to judge you on your actions and your thoughts and your desires, you would be without hope in this world. Now, all of a sudden, God loves you means something. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is a Savior who came to save now means something. And so John the Baptist was that one who renounced the bad news that people need to repent that people need a savior. And so he announced and prepared the way. And just by way, this is Malachi chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 40, and even an allusion to Exodus chapter 23. And the reason these passages are in here is to show how the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled. This is not something that came out of the blue. This is actually something that people were expecting for hundreds of years. So Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and the first proof is that he fulfilled prophecy. The second proof is the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit. Look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, earlier we said that Jesus is more than a man, but he's not less than a man. He was a man. He got tired. He ate. He slept. He drank. And he was not the only person to be baptized. Jesus being baptized was actually a common thing. John the Baptist, that's what his title was. He baptized people. And so Jesus being baptized was not a special thing. But I promise you this, he's the only person that after he was baptized, the heavens themselves ripped open. The Spirit of God came down and God said, yep. That's my son. You see, Jesus did a very human thing, but to prove that he wasn't just a man, heaven responded to his actions. The second proof is the Father and the Spirit descending upon him, the voice of God himself saying, just in case there was any doubt, 
Let everyone know that he is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The heavens tore open once again, pointing to Psalms chapter 2, Isaiah 42. These are Old Testament passages being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The third proof we get is actually three kind of quick succession proofs of his power on display, his preaching, and his power even over people. Let's break those three down really quickly. Verses 12 and 13. So he had been baptized, heaven tore open, the voice of God and the Spirit of God came down. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, some of you who may have read Matthew or Luke or John, some of these other parallel passages are realizing these stories are kind of short. I mean, we preached a whole sermon on the temptation of Jesus. This seems like it's missing a whole lot of details. What about Satan taking him up to the, to the temple? What about Satan saying, telling him to turn these stones into bread? What about Satan telling him to jump? Like, what about all of the, the details of actually the temptation of, of Satan? Mark is not concerned with all that, y'all. What is Mark concerned with? Proving to you that Jesus is who he said he was. And so the point of him including this passage isn't that he was tempted by Satan, but two things. One is that he drove Satan away, and two, that even the angels were serving him. You see, he demonstrates his power even over the angels. They came to serve him, not the other way around. Once again, Mark is trying to tell us there's something different about this man, Jesus, who Satan comes at him and walks away defeated, and then the angels come to take care of his even physical needs. Then we see preaching. We're not going to get a lot of preaching from Jesus in the book, um, but this is one of the times we get a little bit. Verse 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming or preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, he says, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, what's different about this message versus John the Baptist's message? They're saying very similar things. John the Baptist saying, repent and be baptized. Jesus saying, repent and believe the good news. What's, what's different here? Yeah. What's different here is who's saying it. What's different here is who's saying it. You see, when John said that there's a man coming after me, who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's saying that someone, I'm coming with a message, but the message himself is coming. And when God, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, he's not talking about a set of facts. He's talking about me. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. You see, when Jesus proclaims the gospel, he's not talking about a set of facts. He's talking about himself. I am the good news. I am the reason you have hope in this life. I am the Savior that you have long expected. And so what's different about the message is not the message itself, but the messenger. A man who came with power and authority to actually say, no, the good news is here because I say so. It's here because I'm here. In the last part, we saw his power on display through the angels serving him. We saw his power in preaching, and now we're going to see his power even over people. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, hear this exchange, y'all. Verse 17. 
Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men who had followed him. Y'all, somebody comes to your job and is like, hey, man, let's go. If you get up and go, that lets everybody else know that was somebody that just came in here. I don't know who that was, but this man just left his job. I don't know if there's many people that would be like, hey, that would walk in right now. I'd be like, hey, Philip, come on. And I'd be like, well, all right, y'all. You know? Like, that list is short. That list, that list is real short, the amount of people that can get me out of this pulpit right now, doing what God has called me to do. But when Jesus comes to say, hey, come follow me, what do you say? What do you say? We talked about the tragedy of sin in creation last week. God spoke to things that didn't exist and they obeyed. God speaks to man and we oftentimes say no. The tragedy of sin is just how heinous it really is. All of creation is listening to God's beck and call. All of creation is at God's instant command. And yet we find a reason, well, God, I mean, I get off at four. Can you come back? Hey, they got a great dental plan here. What you got, Jesus? Can you send me an offer letter in writing? Like, what, what am I getting here, Jesus? It didn't matter. Whatever came along with following Jesus didn't matter. It was Jesus. And that's still true today, y'all. Whatever benefits come with being a Christian almost don't matter because what you get most of all is Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Is that enough? Serious question, is that enough for you? If Jesus didn't provide, if Jesus didn't heal, if Jesus didn't do all the things that even he said he would do, you take away all those promises of God, is Jesus enough? Worth no benefit package comparison, no offer letter of the details, but enough for Jesus himself to say, come follow me. Do you get up and follow? Or do you make God prove his worth yet again? And that's the other theme of the book of Mark. The primary and central theme of the book of Mark is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the story of Jesus, that he was more than we expected. And right now, he's more than a man. He, and once again, in 20 verses, this is like six chapters of the Gospels and other passages. Because the goal wasn't to tell the story of his baptism. The goal wasn't to tell the story of his temptation. The goal wasn't to tell the story of how he equipped the disciples. The goal was to tell the fact that he did those things. Mark is proving a point by saying Jesus is more than you and I. He's more than a man. He is God himself. Mark is writing more than a biography, more than a history. The second point of the book of Mark is not just who Jesus is, but what should our response be to Jesus? What should our response be to Jesus? You see, if I made a case for worshiping Jesus, everybody would say Amen. If I made a case for singing about Jesus, everybody would say amen. But if I make the case for living like Jesus, well, hold up now. Because living like Jesus might end me up like Jesus. Come on, y'all don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Old folks, you say, I ain't getting no help up here. That's all right. And we want the cross for us, but we don't want to get on the cross for anybody else. We want all the benefits that Jesus calls us to, but we don't want to live like him for real. 
When Jesus says, come follow me, we say, yes, but. Yes, God, but don't touch this relationship now. Yes, but don't touch my money. I work too hard now, God. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Oh, y'all just going to look at me. That's fine. That's fine. You see, Jesus is more than a man. He's God. And we don't get to argue back with God. We don't get to make our case to God. We don't get to try to convince God why his commands don't apply to us. When Jesus told Peter and the disciples, come follow me, the Bible says they immediately got up. And it wasn't a virtue of the disciples. We're going to see the disciples, especially Peter, actually, in the book of Mark, fail time and time again. So this wasn't an example of how awesome the disciples were. It's a model for what discipleship should look like. Instant and willing obedience. Instant and willing obedience. So sometimes we don't, you know, we're good Christian folks, so we ain't going to tell God no. We're just going to move real slow. We're just going to move real slow. Like, God, I'm working on it. 2017, I'm working on it. 2018, I'm working on it. 2019, I'm working on it. You see, most of our sensibilities are refined enough where we know we can't tell God no. So we find another way to tell him no. Once again, God is our father. How does that work for our own children, y'all? Hey, come here, Ezra. All right, I'm coming. I'm just going to take the long way. Maybe I'm going to move real slow. Like, that wouldn't work here, right? But we think God's going to give us, oh, well, you know, God, I know he said to forgive this person, but I know God said to love this person, but I know God said love my enemies, but maybe that's a metaphor for just being nice to people. No, it means to love people who hate you. It means to be willing to die for people who will take your life. It's not a metaphor for anything else other than obedience. It is what it is. I said what I said. (laughs) So here's my point, y'all. Here's my point. We're going to walk through the book of Mark, and I want you to hear the central theme was what we saw in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the story of the good news of Jesus. But the reality is Jesus is more than someone to be worshipped. He is someone that we must follow after. He is, someone, he is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. He gets to say how we live our lives. And the challenge I feel the weight of and I hope you feel the weight of is, is our obedience instant and willing? Do we recognize Jesus as Lord? Do I just enjoy singing about him as Savior? but push him back and reject his power as Lord? Or do I see it as both? Because Jesus will not have partial obedience. He will not have part of our lives. He will have all or he will have none. Jesus is God or he's not, y'all. There's no middle ground. And that's the call to discipleship. Discipleship isn't just a book you read. It isn't a set of facts to memorize. Discipleship is living in community to live more like Jesus, to look more like Jesus. Trusting in the work of Jesus to make all of that possible. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Pray with me.